all that. And we recognize that our school is where it is because of the support of the Village Church and those um, involved with it. So thank you. So let's pray before we open up God's Word this morning. Father God, we want to thank you so much that you are not slack concerning your promises and that everything you do is out of love for us and everyone in this world. That your great love for us is patient and kind and compassionate and just. Lord, help us to appreciate that this morning and to learn from you and may your Holy Spirit impress us today to learn the lessons that you want us to learn this morning and to carry those lessons out into our homes, into our community, into this region, and into the world. In Jesus' name, amen. To begin with the end in mind means to start with a clear understanding of your destination. It means to know where you are going so that you can better understand where you are now and so that the steps you take are always in the right direction. Does anybody know where this quote is from? Okay, so <laughs> that's okay because it's a little bit old. It's from the class, now classic book on how to succeed and reach your goals written by Stephen R. Covey. It's the seven habits of highly effective people, personal lessons, uh, powerful lessons in personal change from page 98. So it's okay you didn't know that. But it's important for our talk today because we want to know where we are going so that we can better understand where we are now and the steps we need to take. A, f a while ago, Pastor Kelly shared about a compass, and I want to elaborate a little bit more on that. A compass is very important in finding your way. And, of course, in a compass, you have 360 degrees. What you may not have known is it takes a very small error to end up in the number of degrees to end up with a very big problem. And this was born out in 1979 in New Zealand when there was a flight with 279 people on it that was going for a sightseeing tour down to Antarctica. Their goal was to fly from New Zealand, go down to Antarctica, uh, fly around and see the sights and then come back. Well, unbeknownst to the pilots and the people on the plane, there was a slight navigational error of two degrees, which put them off by 28 miles from their original um, where they started, which of course made for a big error for where they were landing, and they ended up tragically crashing into Mount Erebus, which is a 12,000-foot mountain in Antarctica, and all 279 lives were lost. So you can see how just a small error, two degrees, about this much in a whole circle, can end up being a very big problem. So that's why we want to understand this statement. And I believe this statement is just as true for Christians and Christian education as it is for fortune 500 companies, and ambitious entrepreneurs. 
Say, for instance, that I am working on the creation of the next generation Omega Plus Ultra Super Duper Extra Special. Can't be beat. Oh, yeah, I'm all that and a bag of chips with a pickle on top. Cell phone. And I'm going to call it the Mega Bugby Infinity. MBI for short. Not to be confused with any other electronic communication devices with I in their name. So you have just heard me come up with this brand new product, so none of you can steal my invention. If it captures the market and earns billions of dollars for its investors and starts a new rage among digital device consumers, then it will be viewed as a stunning success. It will become a household name and will be used by millions of people. And as far-fetched as this story sounds, it actually happens and will continue to happen for a relatively small few people in this world on a fairly regular basis. And in the eyes of the world, this will be viewed as reaching the ultimate destination. It will be considered as reaching the top or winning the big one. Or another phrase you hear in our society today is winning the lottery. My path to success would be studied it'd be emulated, and businesses would seek to replicate it on a worldwide scale so that they too could be winners. But how does that kind of success compare with the victory in Christ that God is calling us all to and experience in Jesus? The example I shared is from business, is the business world, but there are many ways and things that people can compete for. In this world, we compete for money, for power, for prestige, or even just to see how much fun it is to win against other people or ourselves. We do this in games and in competitions, and some people do it in life. But what does the Bible say about what is truly a winning strategy? What does it truly mean to, to win? 1 Corinthians 9.25 says, and you can look there now if you'd like, 1 Corinthians 9.25, everyone who competes in the games trains with strict discipline. They do it for a crown that is perishable, but we do it for a crown that is imperishable. When I was young and before I had uh, metal knees, I would run marathons. And typically back in the running boom craze, um, people who were serious about marathoning would train up to 100 miles a day. I was not quite that serious. I only ran probably 70, 80 miles a week. But my brother, who was really serious, would run up to 120 miles a week. That's really disciplining your body. You have to spend a lot of time, energy, and effort in order to do that kind of training. But the big difference is that for Christians, we are running to win an everlasting perishable crown, whereas they race for a crown that is temporary and all too perishable. So I don't know if you know, but in sports events like these, you have to pay to suffer. <laughs> you pay an entry fee, and then if you do well, you get something, maybe a medal or a trophy or something like that. And I have won a few of those, 
And I can honestly tell you, I don't think I have any of them anymore. <laughs> so that's the kind of perishable thing that we win in this world. But whatever we win in this world today, it will one day fade, rust, decay, turn to dust, and eventually disappear. However, whatever we have done for, in, and through Christ will last forever. Amen? So since we have an incredibly bright future ahead of us, shouldn't we plan and labor and strive toward that end? And what is the end of Christian education? And I mean that both in a general way, because if you are a Christian, are you involved in education? You are. Every one of us as Christians, in a general way, is involved in Christian education. And we'll learn more about that later. But I'm also speaking specifically about those who have been called by God as a calling to educate others. What is the goal we are trying to reach? Please turn with me in your Bible to 2 Peter 3.9, and we'll read to verse 13. 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some think of slowness, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will be dissolved by fire, and the earth and everything that is done on it will be disclosed. Since all these things will be dissolved in this way, what sort of persons ought you to be in leading lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set ablaze and dissolved, and the elements will melt with fire. This is a sober reality, but I want you to focus on verse 13. But in accordance with his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth wherein righteousness is at home. Don't you long for that home? When we think of Ukraine, when we think of the political turmoil in our country, when we think of the economy, when we think of all the chaos in this world, don't we long for that home wherein righteousness dwells? Beloved in Christ, please notice that Peter answers the skeptics and the scoffers and those who questions God's goodness, or at the very least, his sense of timing. Peter sets the record straight for all of us to see. God is not playing games with us. He is not some kind of cosmic clown playing a gag on the universe. He's not like some kind of cat toying with its prey before he finally moves in for the kill. Any of you with cats, you know how they do it, right? They'll get a mouse or something and they'll, they'll kind of play with it before they kill it and eat it. God is not like this at all. No, just the opposite. God is doing everything in his power to save us. If God is stretching time, it is for our benefit. God is love, 
And as a God of love, he is waiting as long as he possibly can to win as many people as he can before time does come to a close. I read a verse this morning, and I was struck by the goodness of God. It's found in Isaiah 30, verse 18. Isaiah 30, verse 18, Therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He therefore waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for him. Isn't that a beautiful picture? God longs for us, and what he's waiting for is for us to long for him back. He's waiting with compassion on us. But notice, right in the middle of the verse, he is also a God of justice. Justice and compassion are not mutually exclusive and opposite things. God's character of justice and compassion work together. And amazing as this is that he longs to save sinners, of which we all are chief, he includes every one of us and he wants to use us to help save others. Notice also that Peter is unequivocal about the events that occur when Jesus comes. There will be no second chance. He is coming like a thief in the night, not silent, because it says that the heaven will pass away with a loud noise, but unfortunately, it will take many people by surprise. And then what? The very elements will melt. I don't know if you've ever tried to melt something. Um, when I was in eighth grade, we used to have metal shop. And one of the things that we would do is we would cast um, certain things. And when you cast something, you took molten lead, you melted the lead down, and you poured it into the cast. So can you imagine what it is like to melt the elements what does it take to melt oxygen or nitrogen? That's a hot fire. But again, I want you to remember verse 13. But in accordance with his promise, we wait for the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness is at home. I want to pause right now and appeal to you. If you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, your Lord, and the master of your life, I ask you right now to make that decision. Make that choice. God created you to love you, to live with you for eternity, and he longs for you to be in his kingdom. And now is the time to make that decision. None of us can predict the future. We don't know what lies beyond this present moment. So now is the time to answer the call that Christ is sharing with everyone to accept him and to turn away from sin and confession and repentance. Hebrews 3, 7 through 8 says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts in rebellion in the days of trial in the wilderness. This is one of the fundamental purposes of Christian education, to call people to make a choice in Jesus and to help them see how good God really is. I want to share another text with you that demonstrates the importance of making a decision for Christ now 
and what the destination is that we can expect for those who choose to follow Jesus. Please turn to 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, Paul says, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. This was mentioned in Sabbath school, and I want to reiterate, if you've ever been to a funeral that someone has died and the people there do not believe in the hope of a new life after death, it is the most hopeless thing in the world. Because think of it, if someone dies and there's no hope of life after death, what is there? There is nothing. It is total loss. Paul admonishes us not to have that kind of hopelessness. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so that we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Amen? According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, and this is an amazing thing to me, that God would love us so much that he would leave a people on this earth, a remnant, who will never taste death and who are left until the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who fall asleep. Verse 16, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with a trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So will we be with the Lord forever. Amen? Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And I have a confession to make. I have been guilty of not encouraging enough people with those words. So I want to encourage you today to encourage each other with these words. <laughs> because they're probably some of the best words that we have from God's word about what we can look forward to, about our final destination, and what he promises and wants each one of us to experience. Paul wants us to be well informed. You may have heard from people who don't subscribe to the Christian faith or to any faith at all, that one of our problems is that we are just using religion as a crutch. We are just taking things at blind faith. We just don't really have... Uh, a touch with reality, so we're depending upon religion to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. But Paul disproves that here because he wants us to be well informed. He wants us to understand the reality that Jesus promises to each and every believer, an eternity with him. This is our ultimate destination. This is what we have to look forward to. But how can we effectively share this good news with those, with those around us and with those who don't know God? Please look to 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. Peter says it this way, But you are a chosen generation or chosen race, a royal priesthood and holy nation, God's own people in order that you may proclaim 
the mighty acts of him who called you out of what? Darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Again, we see this recurring theme of God who has compassion and mercy on his people. As Christian educators, and I mean that both in the general sense and the specific sense, we have been called to proclaim the mighty acts of God and lead people out of darkness into his marvelous light. I want to share one example from the Bible and then share some practical ways that the village school is opening the students' eyes to see Jesus. Please turn with me now to 2 Kings chapter 6. It's a very familiar story, so we won't read all the verses, but I'll give you the Reader's Digest condensed synopsis. And that is, there was uh, a school of the prophets, and then there was war with the Syrians, and the Syrian king was having a problem. The problem is, he thought there was a spy in his midst, and he couldn't figure it out, because every time he made a move, Israel was already beyond that, and he couldn't figure out what was going on. So one of his counselors said, no, 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 king, you don't understand. There's no spy here. They have a prophet. And the prophet knows what you're doing in your own bedroom. So he says, okay, we got to fix that. So the way we'll fix it is we'll take out the prophet. So if you'll look down in um, verse 14, 2 Kings six fourteen. Therefore he sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots, and the servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? I can imagine right now there's many people in Ukraine feeling this way. They see these armies surrounding their cities, their, uh, their country, and they must feel overwhelmed and not know how things are going to turn out. And I want to share one story from my own past experience. My, my personal experience, but a personal experience that was shared with us, we used to go on mission trips with a pastor named Dwight Taylor, and Dwight Taylor was a missionary in South America. And when he was in South America, there was a time when, of course, he had to leave where he, he was with his family and go and share the gospel with other people. And on one of those trips, his family and the people in a compound where they were living were left alone. So he went on his trip, and he came back, and that's the end of the story, except it wasn't the end of the story. So come to find out, while he was doing evangelism in this region, certain people were come to the meetings and were one to Christ, and in one of those meetings, he was talking with a group of men, and the group of men said, we are really excited about what we're hearing about Jesus. We want to learn more about him, but we want to know one thing. And he said, what's that? He says, we want to know where you got your arm army of armored silver light men. And Pastor Dwight said, what in the world are you talking about? And they said, well, when you went away on that trip, we surrounded your compound because we did not like you. We hated you. We hated the message you were giving. And we decided to kill everyone in that compound. But we couldn't because it was surrounded. Uh, and Dwight used to cry every time he said this because this actually happened. He said, 
we couldn't because there was an army of silver men around, in, all lit up in armor around your compound. So we didn't do that. It's kind of the same thing that's going on here. The servant says, what shall we do? So he answered said, do not fear for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the young man's eyes and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots and fire all around Elisha. Brothers and sisters, I want to tell you that those who are with us are more than those who are with them. We don't need to be afraid. And I want to share specific examples about how we at Village Adventist Elementary School open up students' eyes to see Jesus. And you may ask, how do we do that? And I'm so glad you asked. Because as principal, I have the privilege of observing our teachers in their classrooms, sharing the good news of the kingdom with our young people. I conduct observations in the classrooms for the purpose of encouraging, evaluating, supporting, and mentoring our teachers. And I am blessed to see our teachers not only teach the gospel to our children, but to live it in front of them. One of the lessons that I observed was in Mrs. Alonco's kindergarten class. It was a lesson about fish. But really, it was a lesson about the God who created the fish. It was a lesson about the God that sustains the fish. It was a lesson about the God that designed so many different kinds of fish. It was a lesson about the God that gave the fish different party, body parts to swim. And most importantly, it was about the lesson about the God who loves each one of those kindergarten children so much that he calls each and every one of them to be fishers of men if they choose to follow him. Yes, beloved, I heard, I saw, I tasted, I touched that lesson about the gospel according to fish in Mrs. Alonco's classroom, and it was a powerful message. And if you're wondering, the fish weren't the kind that flap around, they were the kind that are goldfish that come in a bag. Yes, beloved, I saw that message, and it was a powerful message, but I want you to know that Mrs. Alonco's kindergarten class is engaged in this kind of learning and those kind of lessons every day. On the other side of the building, I observed the lesson in Mrs. Getty's seventh grade social studies class about the American Revolution. In it, Mrs. Geddes had hired her students as detectives and impaneled them as members of a jury to determine the guilt or innocence of the British soldiers on trial for the Boston Massacre. The striking thing about this trial, besides the fact that it was an important event leading up to the American Revolution, was the critical nature of truth. As John Adams, the defense attorney for the British soldiers, passionately proclaimed, and later to be uh, one of our presidents, facts are stubborn things. In a trial where men's lives hung in the balance between guilt and innocence, life and death, truth was everything. 
Certainly the truth that we have to share in Jesus is a truth that decides the guilt and innocence of men and delivers them from the death penalty. Jesus said it another way in John 8, 32. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And John 17, 17, sanctify them by your word. Your word is truth. The centrality and primacy of God's word at Village Seventh-day Adventist School is woven into the fabric of teaching and learning both inside and outside the classroom. And it is not only about memorizing scripture, as important as that is. It is about living out scripture in our daily lives. Take, for example, the trips by 7th and 8th grades to Adventist Frontier Missions and to our local community for service projects. At AFM, our students stacked wood, raked, painted, and landscaped. In the fall, they raked leaves at houses around the school. Every week, a group travels to neighbor to neighbor to work in the store so that they can better serve our local community. Earlier this year, the first and second grades shared food from our garden with families through Andrews University, God's Abundant Pantry Program. Third and fourth graders also traveled to Whitcomb residents in St. Joe to minister to retired seniors. These activities and many more like them are what I call love with shoes on. Our students receive the love of God from his spirit, from their teachers, and from each other. And then they give as has been given unto them. Give and it will be given unto you a good measure, pressed down, shaken, running together, and running over. This abundant love is what we want for our students and for them to share with others. Amen? In the first grade, Mrs. Stevenson is leading her students into an understanding of healthy eating choices. And that is reflected in the lunch line. I see it when I serve them. It is encouraging and inspiring to see a first grade young person make healthy nutritional choices and alerts us to the potential of the modern day Daniel's band that will stand for God in all areas of their lives. It is especially important for our young people to develop those healthy lifestyle choices and habits that will continue with them for their entire lives. We also had an opportunity this year, you've heard about this when the seventh grade went down to Florida, where I was super impressed and inspired because the seventh graders took the worship service, they did everything for that, and then later on that afternoon, they did literature evangelism in the community. They were sharing with people. One of our students in the group that I was with went up to a state trooper's home. He asked him if he could pray for him and shared literature with him, and he was able to pray for this man. Um, and then on Sunday, they were able to do community service at the church. And sometimes when you're working with people, you know how it is, or young people, you have to kind of cajole and not at all. In fact, it was just the opposite. They would come up to me and say, Mr. Bugby, what's next? What can we do now? And this is an example of how love is overfilling, overflowing in these young people's lives and they want to share it with others. Finally, 7th and 8th grades will par participate in a parallel medical missionary training 
um, that goes along with our immersion program that Mrs. Stevenson and the seventh and eighth grade teachers, Mrs. Geddes and Mr. Coles, are helping to organize so that they will practice and learn hydrotherapy, poultices, using nutrition as therapy, and other natural remedies. God wants to bless people through an understanding of healthy lifestyle choices and simple natural remedies. And he wants to bless and use our people in sharing the good news of healthy living in a world that is bombarded with often conflicting, confusing, and inaccurate messages about healthy living, especially concerning what we eat, what we drink, and what kind of activities we engage in with our bodies. So after what I've shared, you may ask if village school is nearing its destination or ask how far are we from our goal. I want to return to our first quote of the day and then share some statements from the spirit of prophecy. To begin with the end in mind means to start with a clear understanding of your destination. It means to know where you are going so that you better understand where you are now so that the steps you take are always in the right direction. When we look to Christ, for he is our final goal, we see how far we have to go. One thing I like to do in my free time is high point, and I have 14 high points now, and high pointing is where you go to the high point of the state. Some of them are pretty unimpressive. In Rhode Island, they have one, Jeremoth Hill, where you drive about from here to the, where you drive to a parking lot and you walk from here to the end of the church, and you're at the high point, <laughs> that's it. But there are some that are real mountains, some that are serious mountains. And one of the things that I have noticed when you're climbing mountains is that when you start, in comparison to the mountain you're climbing, you look pretty big, and the mountain looks pretty small. But as you get closer and closer, the mountain gets bigger and bigger. It looms bigger and bigger before you, and in relation, you become smaller and smaller. I believe that this is true in our walk with Jesus. The closer we come to him, the bigger he will become and the smaller we see ourselves in relation to him. From Christ Object Lessons, page 69.1. When the fruit is brought forth, immediately he puts forth the sickle because the harvest is come. Christ is waiting, back to our sermon title, what is Jesus waiting for? Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in his church. When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim his, them as his own. This is the ultimate goal of Christian education, to work alongside Christ in developing the character of young people to reflect his character. This is the object of all our lessons, our efforts, our energies, and our prayers. So to answer the question, no, we have not reached our destination, but we are on the path, and Paul tells us in Philippians 1.6 that being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Amen? From Christ Object Lessons, page 69.2. 
They shall see his face, and his name shall be in their, his, their foreheads. Revelation 22.4. It is the privilege of every Christian not only to look for, but to hasten the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're all who profess his name, bearing fruit to his glory, how quickly the whole world would be sown with the seed of the gospel. Quickly, that last great harvest would be ripened and Christ would come to gather the precious grain. I want to share one last quote from Acts of the Apostles, a book I'm going through right now, from page 34. Thus will be fulfilled Christ's promise to his disciples. I will come again and receive you unto myself. From John 14, 3. Those who have loved him and waited for him, he will crown with glory and honor and immortality. The righteous dead will come forth from their graves, and those who are alive will be caught up with him to meet the Lord in the air. They will hear the voice of Jesus sweeter than any music that ever fell on mortal ear, saying to them, your warfare is accomplished. Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Well might the disciples rejoice in the hope of their Lord's return. Our closing hymn is number 245, More About Jesus. Jesus.